Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 3rd of January, 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Charles Mallet. Welcome to the programme, Charles. Thank you very much. Uh, and we've got De and, uh, Happy New Year to everyone. And uh, Debbie Evans is joining us uh, by video link as usual. Um, and Debbie, let's get kicked off then because, uh, well, the health service continues to collapse. It does indeed. Happy New Year, everyone. And it's not too happy for people waiting for treatment in the NHS because, of course, we know the junior doctors have just started a six-day strike. This is the longest in NHS history. started at seven o'clock today and it finishes at seven o'clock on January the 9th. Now, this means all doctors under consultant level. That doesn't include GPs, but it also doesn't include military doctors either. So it's possible that you may see some military personnel in hospital for the next six days, but crisis in the NHS. And uh, more worry too, as Japanese researchers have, um, they've just put out a study saying to expect or predict a pandemic of heart failure. Now, this is being blamed on COVID-19. And the study apparently shows that people who haven't had the vaccine are more at risk because COVID is the cause. Now, obviously, we know of the huge uh, problems that we've seen with serious adverse reactions with regards to the COVID-19 vaccine. There doesn't seem to be any research into that. And I can tell you that most people that I speak to that are unvaccinated don't appear to be having heart trouble at the moment. Well, uh, the question is, what is the reason for this? Is it to uh, cover up, let's say, uh, any speculation or any discussion or any analysis of uh, whether COVID-19 vaccines are responsible for the uh, heart issues that are clearly happening and excess deaths in general. Um, this was tweeted out by uh, Leo Varadkar, the Irish Taoiseach, uh, on the 2nd of January yesterday. Uh, no excess deaths here, that's in Ireland, during COVID pandemic, OECD report says, as Health Minister Hill's high vaccine uptake. And uh, this uh, is linking to an independent.ie article. Uh, this article, the headline is no excess deaths here during COVID, COVID pandemic. Um, so the question is, what was this about? Well, the OECD published, or at least the Irish government uh, published this graph based on the uh, OECD statistics. Uh, and of course, the OECD had decided that really the statistics over excess mortality just didn't seem to be quite right and the, needed the, the models that were being used didn't seem to be quite right. And maybe they needed to be adjusted. And so they have been adjusted now. And you can see there that uh, New Zealand uh, had uh, the adjusted figures are in the light blue, of course, uh, had apparently the lowest excess mortality with a, a looks like about negative 4%. Uh, excess mortality. Ireland uh, looks like about negative three or so. Uh, that looks like the fourth, uh, wor the fourth best in these new adjusted figures. Uh, we can see the OECD average in the middle there with the red bar, uh, and to the right of that, uh, the UK, uh, the United Kingdom uh, is has a reasonably significant excess mortality, even with the adjusted figures. Uh, the worst countries there, the likes of Turkey. Uh, Costa Rica, uh, United States, significantly worse than the United Kingdom, Bulgaria, Colombia, and Mexico. Now, the reason uh, that they're saying uh, that uh, the figures could be made negative with respect to Ireland is because uh, they say they have now adjusted for population growth and so on uh, compared to population pre-COVID-19. But of course, for two years, uh, nobody was allowed to 
travel terribly much. And so its uh, population increase has happened certainly in 2023 uh, as a result of immigration and so on. Uh, but th th there's some questions to be asked about this still. Uh, but the problem is that if we go back a year or two, we see headlines like this, Ireland's excess mortality rate, fourth highest in the EU. Uh, and that's from breakingnews.ie and from the Irish Examiner here. Funerals delayed as increase in number of deaths puts mortuaries under pressure. These were from, well, that was from January 2023. So it's all a bit unclear how the OECD has arrived at this uh, particular claim. Um, uh, let's have a look at this because, of course, the, the big question that remains and the big elephant in the room is uh, whether we're seeing the same uh, excess mortality in Africa. And we certainly didn't uh, with during the COVID years themselves. So this was the New York tri Times uh, from 2022 trying to cope with this fact with their headline, trying to solve a COVID mystery, Africa's low death rates. Uh, and here's LSE, the London School of Economics uh, from May this year. Africa's COVID-19 statistics highlights bias in excess death modeling. So they're all flailing around trying to find an explanation which for excess mortality, which doesn't involve uh, vaccinations. Uh, and I just find that quite an incredible situation. Um, in the meantime, the MHRA, because of course they do great things, uh, have announced the new, well, they announced this actually in May last year, the new international recognition framework. I'm bringing this back on screen because uh, uh, they have now uh, stood this up. It is now formal and any... Uh, medicine coming into the UK that's recognised by other certain other countries uh, can be applied for and get an automatic pass by the MHRA because the International Recognition Framework is now live as of the 1st of January this year. Uh, let's look at the other countries. We've got Australia, Canada, Switzerland, Singapore, Japan, United States, the European Union and European Economic Area, uh, including the various member states. Um, are all involved in this. And so what they're saying, but we don't need to worry because what they're saying is that as a sovereign regulator, the MHRA retains ultimate authority to accept or reject applications submitted under the IRP, uh, but the shared global expertise inher inherent in the IRP process is designed to result in a more rapid, efficient and cost-effective process for applicants. At launch, the MHRA will partner with regulators in those countries uh, and will just that'll just be a shoe-in for various uh, for various medications. So, Debbie, uh, that must make you feel particularly positive about the new year. And of course, we must recognise the MHRA taking a leading role to become, at least it would like to see itself as the global regulator. Well, this was always the intention, obviously, from the, the get-go, the global regulator. But I, I think um, it's going to be very interesting, the next board meeting. So perhaps people that are watching might like to ask some questions because grab your ticket now. The MHRA board meeting, which is scheduled for Tuesday, the 16th of January, 10 o'clock to 12.30. Now, please submit questions prior to, I think it's Monday the 8th of January there, 2024. They won't accept questions afterwards, but a lot of questions to be asked. Our eyes are completely focused on the MHRA for the, for the foreseeable future. 
So please join me for the MHRA board meeting and grab your ticket. But staying on health, and I see this week that Sky brought out a story about the RSV jab would cut baby hospital admissions by more than 80%. Now, we've talked about this before, this injection that they're giving to babies. Uh, This is not a vaccine. This is a monoclonal antibody. Uh, The study included 8,000 babies up to the age of 12 months. Um, And uh, we've had interviews with Dr. Ros Jones on previous occasions, consultant pediatrician, and we've been saying RSV respiratory Centocele virus, most children make an unremarkable, which in medical speak is a good recovery. They do not need these injections. So please, parents, grandparents, please inform everybody um, that that may need to know. Uh, Moving on this year, if we do get our election and the Labour win, we can look forward to Labour's new plan to open up the NHS to private entrepreneurs. So they're basically looking at ramping up and accelerating clinical trials at home health tests and promoting the NHS app, which seems to be uh, being picked up by an awful lot of people. Um, Also yesterday, I picked up a copy of The Times because I was alarmed by the front page, which says cancer diagnosis. So they're going to be diagnosing one Britain a minute by 2040 with cancer. Now, this is a warning from Cancer Research UK, which of course we've done work on before. And we know that Cancer Research UK is funded by Big Pharma. But if we look further into this article, you can see that the plans are to wipe out cervical cancer by 2040. There'll be a smoking ban, so that will reduce lung cancer. AI will be reading all scans and x-rays. Do you trust AI? I don't. There will be cancer vaccines and the holy grail blood tests. Well, you might remember that's the early test for cancer. Grail was a company that was formed by Jeff uh, Bezos and Bill Gates. And of course, they're going to be doing lung screening too. And then who remembers the good old days where you knew who a nurse was when you walked into a hospital. You knew who they were because the uniform Well, I'm sorry, folks, but the uniform is again changing for this year into a new national uniform. And apparently the chief nursing officer says that patients are getting too confused with all of the uniforms. Well, I don't know about you, but if you see the next screenshot, the myriad of different uniforms that are set to hit our wards is absolutely insane. And I certainly wouldn't be able to remember who was who based on that chart. So it looks as though it's going to be doubly confusing. Um, And then my final slide for health really on this segment is that Somerset Council are saying that they're heading for bankruptcy because of the significant, well, the rocketing rocketing care costs. So there's going to be a national 6.5% rise in council funding this year, but they just can't keep up with it. So I think look for more council uh, bankruptcies associated to healthcare. Uh, thank you, Debbie. Now, Charles, uh, speaking of finances, and we're not talking council finances, but public sector finances. We are. And we're going to look at how the government's been spending your money since it's the start of the year. So we'll go back to data from 2023 provided by the Office for National Statistics. And these are the public sector finances released just before Christmas. And they describe how the relationship between UK public sector monthly income and expenditure leads to changes in deficit and debt. So the first graph, and of course, statistics can be drawn up and interpreted in a number of different ways, but this shows the the government borrowing 
And this on the left-hand side is, goes back to 1994, coming up to 2023. So you can see the enormous uplift in borrowing in 2020. To set that in context, we will go on and have a look at uh, the borrowing expressed as a percentage of GDP, gross domestic product. And of course, the coronavirus restriction pandemic period uh, is dwarfed by those of the First and Second World Wars. But what's interesting to note between the two points is that not only have there been periods of surplus, but also the cyclical nature of the way in which government manages finances. Um, now, I'm afraid we are sticking with graphs to be able to illustrate these points. And the next thing we'll go on to is the net debt. So again, not, not talked about probably enough in mainstream media, but net debt is running at more or less 100% of GDP now which, as the graph says at the top here, hasn't been seen since the early 1960s. So it does illustrate the predicament that we find ourselves in, at least in terms of how the government is managing the money that it takes from the taxpayer via all the various means and mechanisms. So that's the, the borrowing side of it and the debt side of it. The next thing to consider is how on earth is the government actually spending this money where is it going and what are they doing with it? So we'll just bring on screen something from the Institute for Fiscal Studies, their tax lab part of their website, which has a, a colourful pie chart here. And the reason for wanting to put this up on screen is, first of all, to draw your attention to the absolutely enormous segment, which is labelled other. Uh, and in effect, that's um, items of expenditure that aren't annotated in enough detail to be able to provide detailed breakdown. So there's an awful lot of room for manoeuvre, in effect, for government being able to hide exactly what it is and where money's going, something that UK Column has concentrated on a lot in the past. But, but also what's interesting to note is the, the quantity of health spending and indeed the way that the IFS explains it. So We'll just read what's gone on screen now, which is that the major trend of the past 70 years has been a steady increase in the share of national income devoted to government spending on health and a corresponding decrease in the share of a national income devoted to defence. So between 1955 and 2023, health spending increased from 2.8% to 8.4% of UK GDP. Now, what's interesting is how the IFS described this. They say that the rise was offset by a fall in defence spending from 7.6% to 2.2% of GDP. And they refer to this as a peace dividend. They say this peace dividend allowed the government to spend more on health without increasing the size of the state. I would say that last clause is extremely questionable in many respects. First of all, has there really been a peace dividend? And if we're to believe that there has, is it really being genuinely offset by anything that we can describe as a health dividend? I would put it that that, again, is extremely questionable. So we'll just go on to a couple more uh, graphs just to, again, set the context. But this is, this is government spending over time, just to get a sense of, of where we are. And again, this is by percentage of GDP. So we're at the right-hand side of the graph now with the enormous blip for the, for the COVID-19 
uh, restrictions and when the economy was effectively damaged, hopefully not beyond repair, but but absolutely very considerably. And then just retrospectively, we'll just close by looking at uh, statistics provided by the DWP. And these show the, the benefit claimants. F- 53% of households in the United Kingdom are now receiving benefits of one sort or another. And this shows the allocation of where they're going. Debbie's spoken at length about the PIP, personal independence payment, and the disability living allowance, which are uh, shown there and tally up to well over 4 million recipients. Um, but but just to give an idea of the um, of the damage that can be done and how it sort of there has been an immediate sense of some sort of recovery, we can see that whilst state pension recipients have gone up, employment and support allowance fell uh, by 6.2%. This, sorry, this is going back to, to immediately following the restrictions back to 2022. Um, job seeker allowance fell by 35%. Housing benefit fell by 7.9%. So the, the reason for, for showing that sort of historic data is just to give an idea of, first of all, how the government are managing the money that we give to them, but also how the economy, if given the chance, can bounce back. So obviously much more data to come out over the course of this year, which will be reported on when that happens. Okay, thank you. If you like what the UK column does, you'd like to support us, uh, community.ukcolumn.org is the place to go, and uh, you'd be very welcome as a member there. Your support very much needed. Uh, you could p- pick something up at the UK column shop. Let's not forget the MHRA Not Fit for Purpose t-shirts. Uh, we want to keep that campaign going. Uh, and uh, But do share material you find on the platforms, especially ukcolumn.org, ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Now, very briefly, uh, tomorrow at 1pm, uh, I had an interview with uh, Ben Pyle, uh, climate campaigner. Uh, that will be going out tomorrow if you want to uh, uh, understand a little bit more about uh, what's going on with the climate change narrative and how that fits in with many other narratives uh, that we are hearing about at the moment. Uh, and then on Sunday, uh, we will be hosting another uh, symposium from uh, the International Centre for 9-11 Justice this time, entitled Genocide and Empire examining October the 7th and the geopolitics of the war on Palestine. Uh, so Professor Richard Falk, Professor uh, Atif Kabersi, uh, Vanessa Bailey, Aaron Good, and Kevin Ryan will be speaking at that. It'll be hosted by Pierce Robinson. Starts at 6 p.m. on Sunday evening. Uh, please join us for that. Um, very briefly, Debbie, very briefly, please, your blog is up. It is indeed, yes. And as you can see, COVID jabs are going to be sold on the high street, but be ready for that because they're £100 each. Uh, can AI predict uh, predict your death? Yes, it can. And plenty more about peace and security, cybercrime. Sir John Edmonds, uh, who's been knighted as the lockup professor. Okay, thank you. And uh, uh, finally, a reminder then uh, that Andrew Bridgen will be hosting uh, another debate on trends and excess deaths on the 16th of January at 9.30 a.m. He's asking uh, once again for people to write to their MPs uh, and uh, make sure that they attend. Okay, let's move on. Now, one of the uh, features, particularly since the COVID, uh, but actually before that, uh, has been the issue of behavioral change and behavioral change applied psychology being uh, pushed on all of us. Uh, And of course, that uh, the spy bee Um, document uh, being an exclusive for us at the time. Uh, Public Contracts Scotland, I want to thank the viewer that sent this to me. Public Contracts Scotland has put this uh, contract notification out uh, because, of course, probably the original 
um, policy area where behavioural change was viewed as being important was energy efficiency. So this is a, a contract for the replacement of LED lights, street lighting in Scotland. Uh, and if we just look at the title here, it comes under the heading of energy efficiency and behaviour change. And actually, this is something that goes right through the uh, net zero uh, documentation from very many sources. Um, let's just look at one of the sources. This is uh, C, uh, Sustainable Energy Advice. This is a, a New Zealand-based uh, organisation. Um, and uh, let's just have a look at what they say about themselves. Since its inception in 2011, C has uh, worked with the User-Centred Energy Systems or Users TCP by the International Energy Agency to lead the first global behaviour change research collaboration called Task 24 Behaviour Change in DSM. For this research, C collaborated with hundreds of behaviour change experts around the world to figure out how to best tackle such a complex and messy problem. And in order to sort of visualize uh, this uh, task 24, they produced this handy graphic. So let's just uh, have a look at this in a little bit more detail here. So they're talking about uh, behavior right in the center of there and various rings around the technology, social infrastructure and environment. And then they're looking at the types of change agents that they have in place that can help people uh, change their behavior. Uh, decision makers being government, uh, through uh, the government ministers, through policy uh, and local government and so on. Uh, what else have we got here? We've got experts, of course, they're used to help us change our, uh, our uh, behavior. We've got the media up at the top there. We've got industry. Uh, we've got investors, so banks and so on, because uh, money is a good way to encourage people to change their behavior. Uh, we have uh, other behavior changers, uh, and this might include social media influencers, for example, but also healthcare workers, education, our school children, uh, and so on. Uh, and uh, then we have, of course, ourselves and the type of uh, NGOs, but community NGOs, uh, but also ourselves, our family and friends, because we obviously influence each other and we help each other change our behavior, hopefully in the way that the government wants, don't we? Uh, so let's uh, bring this on screen just to give you an idea of the scale of this. So this is the Energy Institute, and they've published this page, Energy Insight, Energy Efficiency and Behaviour Change. And they're looking at international uh, behavioural change uh, mechanisms through the United Nations, through the World Energy Council. Uh, we've got Europe listed through the European Commission Director General, General Energy uh, and uh, the European Environment Agency. We've got the UK government through its Department of Energy and Climate Change. Uh, and that includes, of course, uh, the Behavioural Insights team that we've mentioned so many times. Uh, we have, uh, well, smart meters uh, derogation guidance. We'll talk about smart meters in a second. Um, we've got non-UK government organisations, Carbon Trust, Demos, uh, UK ERC. We've got academic institutions, including the uh, British Psychological Society, the Energy Institute. Um, we've also got Stanford University, Ethos. Uh, then we've got energy company initiatives from British Gas and E.ON. In particular, other organizations, including RAC uh, and then other countries. But uh, this was what struck me over Christmas. I happened to catch a couple of advertisements. For half price electricity, we can catch up on our chores if you're a British gas customer. Uh, we can uh, cook our Sunday roast and so on. Uh, but the question is then, who uh, takes part? Uh, and the truth is that the people take part are people with smart meters. Of course, a smart meter is requirement. 
Uh, and a smart meter is absolutely a key mechanism for behavioral change. Um, so this uh, advertisement uh, going on uh, on televisions across the UK over Christmas, uh, because that is an absolutely key part of uh, the, the whole climate change net zero agenda, is how we actually encourage uh, our us to, to do the right thing, as the government would see it. Um, and uh, that is something that we have been really wanting to encourage everybody to think about just how much your behavior is being influenced. Remember the Mindspace document says you won't realize it's being done. Debbie, let's uh, move on to education. Yeah, and let's stay on the theme of uh, behavior as well. And uh, for people that are got sharp ears, you'll notice that special educational needs won't be mentioned in this segment. And that is very important to remember for many reasons. So who's heard of the EWF, the Education World Forum? Gillian Keegan, our um, education secretary, has been celebrating the role of international education and promoting the benefits at the EWF. Well, we're not talking about the WEF, it's the EWF. So let's go and look at the uh, Education World Forum. And we can see that it's the world's large, largest gathering of education and skills ministers. They're going to be meeting the 19th to the 22nd of May, and there's 120 ministers over 114 countries. So this is a big, a, a big organisation, and if we see who supports it, um, there's plenty of names that you're you're recognised. Just to read out a few: McKinsey, Microsoft, Lego, National Geographic. Then you've got the Department of Education, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, and the Department. And trade, so a big organization. So let's look at the WEF because I'm seeing this word reset, reset being used everywhere, and especially in education. So back in 2015, they were talking about how to reset education and how to help. So we decided to look at the UK and to see how we were resetting education and resetting behavior. This article in Schools Week says that uh, this is going to be an alternative provision to support learners to reintegrate into mainstream school. So why are they not in mainstream school in the first place? Perhaps they could be special educational needs. And they're going to be using this CALM program for mindfulness and mental health well-being um, but in 2.15, also in Schools Week, you'll see that Nikki Morgan appointed a behavioural guru, if you like. Um, Tom Bennett's his name is. He already advised on teacher training. And um, he is now being appointed to tackle pupil misbehaviour. So if you go and look on the government's, uh, the gov.uk page, you can see that he has created a culture of behaviour management in school. And indeed, he's even got his own page on the National College. Um, if you see that slide next, you can see his face coming up there so you know what he looks like. The national Have you got the slide for the National College? That's it. Um, and if you go to his bio on there, you'll see that this whole thing started really from a book he wrote called Running the Room. Um, well, we'll find out what room he was running in a minute. Um, if we look at the early career hub, we can see that he wrote an article called Resetting and Rebooting Behaviour. Um, this is a man who doesn't have a lot of experience, as you'll come to find out, but he wants to basically outline class routines, 
make children practice till they get it right, sell the benefits, which means basically making a pact with student and teacher and always follow up. Well, I can tell you now that will not work with special educational needs children. Uh, it's not a one size fit all at all. So we've now got behaviour hubs. Uh, the DfE have been investing £10 million into behaviour hubs. So I went to look at the behaviour hubs uh, that they're rolling out and you'll be able to see them in the next slide there. Uh, apparently they're transformative and these are behaviour hubs that are actually within mainstream schools. They're actually there. So who is Tom Bennett's, I hear you ask yourself? Well, Tom Bennett started, well, his, his dad was a taxi driver, his mum was a nurse, and he did a degree in philosophy. And then he kind of drifted into nightclubs and Soho nightclubs. So he modelled his children's behavioural plan basically on what he saw at nightclubs. He did a PGCE um, teaching and then said, well, there's not a lot of behaviour going on here, so I need to specialise in it. But actually, when you deep dive further into who Tom Bennett is, you can see that he was an ex-nightclub bouncer. Um, and he has used the behavior that he's witnessed in a Soho nightclub to devise this whole behavioral policy. Now, I don't think he was terribly good at it because he actually got barred from running a nightclub because he couldn't control rowdy nightgoers. This was a, a bar called the O-Bar. So uh, do you trust Tom Bennett's with his behavioral techniques for your children? And where are they in reset? Because I heard from a youngster during the Christmas holidays to say that her whole floor of her school had been turned into reset, which was separate cubicles, separated by glass, sounded like a prison to me. And while I was Carrying on looking at education, uh, in December, the Gender Questioning Children Non-Statutory Guidance for Schools and Colleges in England, the draft was brought out. Now, this is intended for schools, colleges and teachers. And you'll see the foreword has been written by uh, Gillian Keegan, MP, Secretary of State for Education, and Kemi Badenoch. And you can see some of the things that are happening in the consultation. I haven't gone into it in depth because it's a big document, but you can see single sex spaces, toilets, changing rooms, showers, all sorts of things are in this consultation. So please go and look at it. Although I think there could be backlash from this because as the Mail Online are warning, schools that follow government trans guidance are at high risk of successfully being sued. And apparently schools seem to be hiding children's gender switching um, so that they don't want families um, informed. So keep an eye on that story. But I think what was most um, terrifying was the, the news that dozens, well, a lot of children uh, under five have been referred to the NHS Transgender Service. Now, I mean, I, I don't even know where to start on this because these are preschoolers. There were 382 youngsters aged six and under, and 70 of those were three or four, and they were being referred on for transgender counselling. They've now actually admitted that maybe this should uh, stay to under sevens, but even that's bad enough. Um, and then also, I saw this story about the Welsh government using teenage girls to attract migrant men. These are schoolgirls, 14-year-old girls, to attract migrants into Wales. And I think we've got a short bit of video to show you now. Shumai. Hello and welcome to Wales. We understand being a refugee isn't easy. They go through so much. 
Fleeing your country is difficult, but Wales wants to help you feel welcome. The Welsh Refugee Council is here to help you. You can contact them here. Wales is seen as a nation of sanctuary. We welcome anyone and everyone. We recognise your skills and talent. The Welsh Refugee Council offers a lot of support. Not only this, but Wales offers free education and health care. There are many job opportunities here in Wales. IKEA works closely with the Welsh Refugee Council, providing jobs for refugees that come from all over the world. We understand that you have been through a lot, and that is why the Welsh Refugee Council is here to help you. Thank you for listening. So do you know what's going on in your child's school? Thank you, Debbie. Uh, okay. Election, Sam. I just wanted to very briefly mention this. Uh, so the ultimate election year. Sorry, this is still you, Debbie, is it? Um, yes, I'm quite happy to go into this if you want to go into this segment yeah. now. Yeah, I didn't realise, but it's the ultimate election year. So apparently 64 countries plus the European Union are all heading for the polls, which is a combined population of 49% of, of, of uh, the population heading for the polls this year. Yeah, OK, thank you. I think uh, that was uh, that. was that. Then we've got election uh, officials see a range of threats in 2024 from hostile states to conspiracy theorists. Yeah, um, indeed. And, and this, this looks like, you know, I'm talking really about black swan events here. And the US elections could be, what they're saying is could be jeopardized because of cyber attack or ransomware or anything else that might happen. So right. the elections are definitely, uh, we're wondering what's going to happen. And plenty of people are actually quoting black swan events. Right. Okay. Well, we'll have a little bit more on that in a minute. But before we get to that, uh, Let's uh, head over here, uh, Charles, and abortions. Thanks, Mike. And in fact, specifically to do with legislation surrounding not actually abortions, but uh, the zones or buffer zones, as they're being referred to, around abortion clinics. So I've got a headline here from the Catholic Herald. Scottish Catholic group lambasts world's most extreme abortion buffer zone. So this is from 2023, but a group of Scottish Catholic bishops has come out and spoken against the proposed legislation, which you may find is ringing a bell in terms of legislation that was passed in England in 2023. But they said, as part of their statement, to remove freedoms from peaceful, law-abiding citizens sets a chilling legal precedent for everyone, including those who support abortion, we believe that calls to introduce buffer zones around abortion facilities where there have been no reported incidents of harassment or intimidation by sorry, participants in peaceful vigils are mistaken. Such vigils bear tangible witness to our common freedoms of expression, speech and assembly. So what is it they're actually talking about? Well, it's the bill in the Scottish Parliament at the moment, which is put forward by Gillian Mackay. It's the proposed Abortion Services Safe Access Zones Bill. And the, the reason for talking about it now is that the calls for written evidence closed just before Christmas. But interestingly, from the text here, or rather alarmingly, this includes any behaviour that might stop a person from getting an abortion or make them feel scared or upset. I've underlined that because... To imagine that people might be going to have an abortion without already feeling scared or upset is 
a strange stance to take on the matter. But further down, we we see that it would also be an offence if a person behaved in these ways in other places, if their behaviour could be seen or heard from the safe access zone. For example, where someone's house is within a safe access zone boundary, they could commit an offence if they do something which could be seen through their window by a person in the safe access zone. So straight away, we're we're moving into the area of thought crime, exactly as we were in England and Wales, with the slightly different legislation. But in a sense there, what was happening was that the what has happened is that councils, local authorities have been given the power to create public spaces protection orders within which they can either prohibit or they can mandate certain behaviours. And the one that received particular attention last year was silent prayer. And in effect, the, although it didn't actually undo the legislation, but of course the ludicrous position was that the authorities, police, had to ask the would-be offender whether or not they were in fact committing an offence, i.e. praying. So how anyone was supposed to tell was not possible to determine. We'll just have a quick look at the uh, part of the legislation itself. So we've got the safe access zones here. The last bit of this is what I want to draw your attention to, which is that each safe access zone consists of each public area of land within 200 metres or such other distance as extended. So it's an enormous area potentially that could be covered by this. We'll then go on and look at the offences. And again, part of the point that the Catholic bishops were making is not only the attack on freedom of speech, but also the point that a lot of you know this is already captured by existing legislation, particularly here, as we see at sea, causing harassment, alarm or distress, which is covered by a multitude of other parts of existing legislation. The other point to make here is that the specific rhetoric is all to do with disapproval of abortion. In England, the public spaces protection orders were put out uh, to deal particularly with any comment on abortion, whether in support or against. But this is all anything that's negative about abortion. So again, we'll just go on now and have a look at the uh, another thing that, that is very, very uh, open to interpretation and it's a terribly subjective part of the bill, which is that where a person does an act in a safe access zone constituting an offence and the act has a continuing effect, it does not matter whether the person referred to is in the safe access zone at, at the time the person does the act. So the, the bounds that, that are created by this bill are absolutely enormous. And I spoke last year, at the close of last year, about the, the super complaint about police uh, uh, abusing the powers given by Section 60. And it's hard to see that legislation such as this wouldn't be open to similar sorts of abuse. We'll just go on and have a quick look at the extension uh, of... Sorry, wrong. We've, we, anyway, uh, if we just go back... Yeah, sorry. Um, the extension of the zones, which may be uh, approved by ministers if the operator of the area puts forward a, a proposal to extend the area. Also, it's worth noting that ministers themselves may of their own accord extend the zone. It's not at all clear why they would be intervening without any previous complaint or comment from the abortion centre itself. But again, extraordinary power to grant a minister. So, and now we'll just set this in the context of the overall sort of abortion picture. Now, the, the next lot of statistics are from uh, England and Wales, really because it's a larger sample size. But I just thought it was interesting to note that statistics, annual statistics from 
June 23 are delayed till April 24. Uh, these come from the 2021 statistics, but they do show the overall trend, which is that over 200,000 abortions were conducted in England and Wales during that period, which is the highest number since they started in 1967. And uh, to age standardise that, the trend is, of course, exactly the same, 18.6 abortions per 1,000 women. So it, it is a, a massive um, uptick, as you can see, since 2016, which comes at a considerable cost. So we'll just look at the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, which says that, the, in a sense, the NHS foots the bill for almost all of the abortions that are conducted, whether or not they take place in a private facility or not. Private facilities, of course, can be paid for by the individual, but, but in almost all cases are funded by the NHS. At a cost here, there is a, a scale, so it's hard to determine exactly what the figure would be, but, but ranging between £480 up to £1,510. So it's a very significant uh, part of a health budget, because of course this is termed as being essential health care, and therefore any, any sort of dissent, as it were, or at least that's the way it's being put, is, is not to be tolerated. So I would just leave you now with something I talked about briefly last year, which is the Fetal Sentience Committee bill. Now, this has been sort of seized upon by the pro-life lobby as being a, a possible chink in the clouds, um, because this is due to set up a committee which will determine the very tricky area of fetal sentience. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that and indeed on the abortion buffer zone bill itself. Yes. Okay. Uh, let's come back uh, onto the issue of elections then. And uh, well, here is the independent this morning. Uh, Putin to run as independent. Or sorry, that's not this morning. That's the 17th of December. Putin to run as independent candidate in Russia's presidential election. Here's what it means. And the subheadline is Putin will be up against a selection of harmless candidates in heavily staged elections in mid-March next year. Uh, and of course, that was published in mid-December. So that's mid-March this year that they're talking about. And Debbie was mentioning a couple of minutes ago, uh, major elections right around the, the world, it seems, at the, in this coming 12 months or so. Uh, but I just had to laugh at the idea uh, that st heavily staged elections in Russia, when in the United States, uh, we have Donald Trump, now what, whether you like him or loathe him, uh, has been blocked uh, from the GOP primary ballot in two states already. Uh, we'll see how many more uh, follow suit. And of course, he's still being prosecuted as hard as he possibly can at the moment. Uh, and uh, PBS News are there asking, can he still run for president? Uh, and then we have this, uh, because uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, of course, uh, in prison at the moment for fraud because of uh, his uh, cr uh, cryptocurrency business, which went out of business. Uh, but of course, he was also funding the Democratic Party uh, to the tune of $100 million or so. Uh, and so uh, this particular tweet saying Sam, Sam Bankman-Fried donated $100 million in stolen custom, uh, cust customer funds to U.S. politicians. Uh, today, the Department of Justice announced that they're dropping six charges against him and will not prosecute him for a political campaign finance violation. Uh, are you surprised? The most corrupt Department of Justice ever. Uh, so that was put out on the 30th of December. So quite an incredible uh, situation that we're happy to, to throw these allegations around at Putin. Uh, but uh, the election, certainly in the United States, probably no better. And uh, I, I wonder what's going to happen uh, at the upcoming British general election. Um, certainly lots of uh, heavy influence going on there, not least from Tony Blair. But Debbie, sorry, you mentioned Black Swan events. 
I did, yes. And it's also interesting to know that Taiwan elections are this month, January. So um, everybody's holding their breath. But looking at black swan events, let's remind ourselves what the World Economic Forum put out just a couple of years ago. The COVID-19 pandemic has shaken our economies and societies to the core and shown us how vulnerable we are to biological threats. In the digital world, similar risks are being overlooked right now. A cyber attack with COVID-like characteristics would spread faster and further than any biological virus. Its reproductive rate would be around 10 times greater than what we've experienced with the coronavirus. To give you an idea, one of the fastest worms in history, the 2003 slammer sapphire worm, doubled in size approximately every 8.5 seconds, infecting over 75,000 devices in 10 minutes and almost 11 million devices in 24 hours. Fortunately, at least until now, cyber attacks have not impacted our health the way pandemics have, but the economic damages, and therefore the impact they have had on our daily lives, have been equal and sometimes even greater. You see, the only way to stop the exponential propagation of a COVID-like cyber threat is to fully disconnect the millions of vulnerable devices from one another and from the internet. All of this in a matter of days. A single day without the internet would cost our economies more than 50 billion US dollars, and that's before considering the economic and societal damages should these devices be linked to essential services, such as transport or healthcare. As the digital realm increasingly merges with our physical world, the ripple effects of cyber attacks on our safety just keep on expanding at a faster pace than what we're preparing for. COVID-19 was known as an anticipated risk. So is the digital equivalent. Let's be better prepared for that one. The time is now. So is the time 2024? Well, it would seem that um, a few people are saying that yes. And one of those is Gary Cardone. Um, he's a US entrepreneur and he's warned uh, that the, a black swan event in 24 could derail the 2024 US elections. He's convinced that something's going to happen between now and August. And he's not alone because a CBS reporter, Catherine Herridge, was also, and you can go and, uh, this was on Face the Nation, and you can go and listen to this. Um, she's also warned of a black swan event. And it's coincidence, serendipity, I don't know, but a film coming out in April this year called Civil War, um, which is all about 19 states in the USA seceded from the US government, which creates a new civil war. Um, and it's basically a race to the White House. So I think we've got a little trailer of Civil War. 19 states have seceded. The United States Army ramps up activity. The White House issued warnings to the Western forces as well as the Florida Alliance. The three-term president assures the uprising will be dealt with swiftly. Let me know if you want to try anything on. I'm guys aware there's like a pretty huge civil war going on all across America. We just try to stay out with what we see on the news. Seems like it's for the best. Citizens of America. The so-called Western forces of Texas and California have suffered a very great defeat at the hands of the United States military. Mr. President, do you regret the use of airstrikes against American citizens? We're moving to DC today. We need to go down there. 
They shoot journalists on sight in the capital. Every instinct in me says this is death. Bloody. Every time I survived the war zone, I thought I was sending a warning home. Don't do this. But here we are. There's some kind of misunderstanding here. What? Well, you're American, okay? Okay. What kind of American are you? You don't know? <laughs> the Western forces will reach the White House on July 4th. Oh my God. Get in the car! Get in the car! You're gonna hang back. I'm not hanging back. One nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Go, 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 go. God bless America. How likely is a black swan event in 2024? Bit of predictive programming there, perhaps. Now, uh, I'm going to say thank you again uh, to a viewer who sent me, I received a, an envelope today and inside it was a newspaper cutting. And the headline on the newspaper cutting was opinion, uh, BBC now a threat to all local newspapers. So I thought, well, I'll go and see uh, if I can find that online. And I just did a search on this particular search engine, but other search engines do exist, and I encourage the use of alternatives. But let's just scroll down through this a little bit and see uh, how widely this was published. And you can see these are all, each each line of this is individual local news, news organizations around the country, uh, ending there with the Shropshire Star at the bottom. Um, so this is the headline, BBC now a threat to all uh, local newspapers. So let's just choose one of them. This is the Eastern Daily Press. Uh, and let's look at a little bit of the text of this, because what they're basically saying is that in October 2022, the BBC had made plans uh, to what they described as strengthen local online news. Now, this is local BBC online news provision. Uh, and the, the local newspapers are basically complaining because the BBC is funded by the taxpayer effectively. And therefore, if it encroaches on the markets of these local newspapers, uh, being com commercial organizations, they have to try to compete with the BBC by, through selling advertising, whereas the BBC just gets this massive bung from the UK government. Uh, and they're complaining that this is uh, uh, anti-competitive and so on. Um, well, the problem is I would accept this argument from local news if they weren't accepting money from the BBC for these, uh, which are local democracy reporters. Um, so the BBC is providing uh, local democracy. We've reported on this many, many times, but the BBC is reporting, providing local and funding local democracy reporting service to these local uh, news outlets for them to benefit. So let's just have a look. What is the LDRS? The Local Democracy Reporting Service is a public service news agency funded by the BBC, uh, providing uh, provided by the local news sector and used by qualifying partners. So if you're a local news outlet, and you're a qualifying partner, uh, you can get money from the BBC to fund uh, your journalists. Um, and they say it's like a franchise. Now, this, this, I think, is the main danger with respect to local news, not the fact that the BBC is, is competing uh, commercially. So if we just put that back for a second, 
uh, it says uh, it's like a franchise, different companies with different approaches, but using common editorial standards and all publishing into the same system. And those common ad- editorial standards, of course, are the BBC's editorial standards and the, the system that they're publishing into is the BBC's system. So um, that, to me, is the uh, danger to local reporting, uh, not so much the uh, BBC encroaching into local uh, news uh, spaces. And if the no- local newspapers are worried about the competition from the BBC, maybe they should consider just doing a better job. Uh, and frankly, that's not too hard. Um, but anyway, let's uh, move on. Uh, let's uh, have a look at this. Charles, I think this is you. It is. And we're going to go to the Horn of Africa, where there's been news in the last couple of days. Uh, first of all, here from the Addis Standard, uh, reporting a historic memorandum of understanding with Somaliland sees Ethiopia secure access to sea, diversify seaport. So this this is a story that, in effect, tells the reader that Ethiopia will have access to coastline for the first time since 1993, when Eritrea split and took that particular part of coastline. Almost immediately after this headline came out was a counter report, which The Guardian has written up here. And it says that Somalia vows to defend sovereignty after Ethiopia-Somaliland deal. Now, why would that be and how is it relevant to us? Basically, the Ethiopians have been granted port access, but specifically uh, if they wish to take it up, which presumably they do, to have a military base at this port. Uh, And in response to that, Ethiopia has declared that they will recognise Somaliland as being a sovereign state, making them the first country in the world to do so. That's caused a lot of controversy within Somalia. So we'll just go on and have a look at the next part of the text from The Guardian, which is taken from the government of Somalia. They say, Somaliland is a part of Somalia under the Somali constitution. So Somalia finds this step to be a clear violation against its sovereignty and unity, the Somali cabinet said on Tuesday. The agreement was null and void with no legal basis and Somalia will not accept it, it added. In response to this, the Somali government has recalled its ambassador in Ethiopia for consultation. So the relevance at the moment is uh, significant in in many respects. And I'll just put a map on screen now to illustrate what I'm talking about. Vanessa has spoken at length about the various effects, both economic and military, on the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. So the area we're talking about is framed by that red rectangle. And just to point out that Israel's Red Sea port is, of course, accessed via the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea up there at the north side of the port of Islet. So we'll just zoom in a little bit on the area. And what we're talking about is marked by the red arrow, the port of Berbera, which will be accessible to the Ethiopians via a corridor, which I'll come on to in just a second. So what I want to get a sense of is the British and other international involvement in the area. In fact, sorry, I will just go back one because I've underlined Djibouti, the country to the northwest. Um, Militarily, Djibouti is home to Camp Nemenye, the uh, combined joint task force Horn of Africa, which is the American forward base from their Africa command. It also hosts a Chinese uh, military base. And um, it's therefore very significant that this looks like Ethiopia are also going to be able to operate militarily within that area, particularly when we find out what's been going on behind the scenes. So I will just move on to 
uh, a report about UK investment into training Somali troops. So we've got from September last year, uh, a further 5 million in funding going to their security forces. And that is on top of significant amounts of money that have gone in there since 2022, 47 million to, to ATMIS and indeed direct training operations between the UK military and the Somali forces. Now, what is not credible is that the UK would have had absolutely no idea that Ethiopia didn't have military designs on this coastal region. Nevertheless, the next slide shows that the UK ambassador at the time, Kate Foster, launched construction of what is called the Hargeisa Bypass. So we should see a, a picture here from May 2021 showing all the various vehicles that were going to start the construction process. And, and I'll just read to you what Kate Foster, the then ambassador to Somalia, said at the time, which is, we are proud to support the Hargeisa Bypass, which is a crucial part of the Berbera Corridor. Once this 240-kilometre project, in coordination with our Abu Dhabi and European partners, is completed late next year, it will improve the lives of hundreds of thousands of people by creating jobs, unlocking the region's economic potential, and ease the delivery of humanitarian supplies. Well, she might concentrate on humanitarian supplies and unlocking the region's potential, but exactly what does she mean by that? And indeed, I go back to whether or not she would have had knowledge that Ethiopia had military designs. The UK is embedded in Addis Ababa, where we support the African Union's standby brigade, uh, and indeed, with close relations with what's going on in Djibouti with the Americans, it, it is frankly not plausible that she would not have known that this would have been controversial. So we'll now look at what Chris Heaton-Harris said, again, back in 2021. Uh, he was then a minister, FCDO minister. And he says, we have also forged a partnership with Dubai Ports World to invest in logistics facilities along the Berber Corridor, which runs from the coast of Ethiopia. These investments have the potential to drive economic growth and boost stability across the Horn of Africa. And he goes on to say, again, those are hugely positive developments. And again, we are proud to play our part. British International Investment, the UK's development finance body, is investing in the port with Dubai Ports World as a part of a 1.72 billion investment into free ports in Africa. Free ports is in red text there, and I'll come back to that for a particular reason. But if you haven't heard of British international investment, then I will just look into that now as we bring that on screen. And they describe on their website what it is they're set up to do. Going back to 1948, so, so fairly shortly after the, the end of the Second World War, they were established as the Colonial Development Corporation in order to do good without losing money. And that's changed a bit over time. In 2004, they were reconfigured to operate mainly as a fund investor. We had a pioneering role in establishing the private equity industry in emerging markets. By the end of 2007, we were working with 42 fund managers across 100 funds. And lo and behold, it's changed again. So by 2022, we were renamed as British International Investment. The new name signifies the increased breadth of what the organisation does and highlights our role as part of the UK's offer to help developing and emerging countries meet their significant financing needs for infrastructure and enterprise. Well, again, we come back to the question, who actually benefits here? Is it Somaliland or Somalia or Ethiopia or none of them? Because the partner that's been referred to, Dubai Ports Worldwide, is uh, DP, sorry, DP World, has a map here showing their global reach through this, this process effectively of developing infrastructure in countries. And of course, 
a great part of this is that it enables them not to create the conditions for the host countries to be able to get products in, rather more it's a question of being able to get mineral resources out. And the United Arab, Arab Emirates, often not talked about in terms of Africa, uh, did trade worth $70 billion in Africa last year, which puts it on a par with the United States of America. So it's very significant in the region. And they say on their website that uh, they know that creating and enhancing their trade partnerships is the key to unlocking economic growth in that region. Through a focus on Somaliland, landlocked Ethiopia and other Horn of Africa countries, DP World aims to transform lives, find new logistics solutions and build the region. And compete with the Belt and Road. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So exactly right. So, so there'll be a competition with China. It's also worth pointing out that on the military side of it, Russia has long been eyeing up the Red Sea coast there. And there's been in negotiations with both South Sudan and Eritrea trying to get a port in there. So, so we, we may end up in a situation where we've got Ethiopia, China, America, Russia, and indeed Somalia, all with military capabilities along that bit of coastline. Mm. So that, that definitely worth, is worth our attention, particularly since we are funding a considerable part of it because the investment uh, platform is, of course, government-sponsored. So I'll just have to show quickly now the government-free ports because this is actually a post-European Union initiative uh, which you may not have heard of, Freeports in the UK, and they say that there are going to be new hubs for global trade, investment and innovation within the UK that create a favourable environment and exciting opportunities for businesses. By choosing to invest within a UK Freeport, you could access a wide range of customs and tax benefits, as well as support from government around planning, infrastructure and innovation. So obviously an, an attempt to effectively conflate this idea with developments going on in Africa and in order to exert both soft and hard power, as they might describe it, at the same time. So we'll keep an eye on that one for sure. Uh, well, we will, because Plymouth is a free port already. Uh, I'm sure there are a number of others around the country. Now, sticking with international things, but maybe not, uh, let's bring this on screen. This is a letter uh, from the Secretary of State, the Right Honourable Mark Harper, to Sadiq Khan, the Mayor of London. Uh, and Mark Harper begins by saying, Dear Sadiq, but he's really complaining about uh, ULES. Uh, let's a particular aspect of ULES. Let's try not try to keep a straight face as you watch this. Uh, so this is what he had to say. Thank you for your letter, also signed by the Right Honourable Ben Wallace MP, seeking my department's, that's the Department of Transport, uh, support in allowing suitable vehicles to be, to, to be donated to Ukraine through the ULES scrappage scheme. Uh, he goes on to say, as Russia's barbaric invasion of Ukraine nears its second uh, anniversary, it is vital the UK stands at the forefront of supporting both Ukraine's government and its people in this valiant fight. Uh, given your ULES expansion scrappage scheme has been in effect since August 2023, I'm surprised that you've not made contact until now. Uh, given the clear opportunity that your scrappage scheme could provide in allowing roadworthy vehicles to be sent to Ukraine. So uh, one of the points that we've made from the beginning of this conflict is that the West and the UK in particular have been using the Ukraine as effectively a dumping ground for all the rubbish that we can't get rid of. Uh, and mainly up to this point, it has been, uh, you know, uh, useless uh, military equipment and so on. Now we need to get rid of our cars as well because of some government policy that says you can't drive it in London anymore. And we're going to do that by dumping it on the Ukrainians. It's just hugely cynical to me. It's, it just appears to be hugely cynical. But anyway, Debbie, uh, let's... Uh, 
end off with a, a, a video of, of, about the British Army. Yes, uh, have a look and see. Welcome to your 60 second update for January 2024 from the British Army. Op Lionel Typer commences in January. Spanning 11 countries, it will be the largest coordinated deployment of UK service personnel for a generation to multiple multinational exercises across Europe. It will prove the British Army's battle readiness and commitment to NATO. A modern British Army, fit for the challenges of the future, requires us to adapt the way we train. To meet the need of future soldier, Army basic training will be changing in 2024. A new soldier academy has been created unifying all Army basic training under one new organisation, recognised for its excellence and providing a spiritual home for the British soldier. More details on the soldier academy will be made available later this month. Finally, are you interested in a medical career in the Army? And did you know that our medics develop their career by working alongside the NHS? Army personnel from various medical disciplines are currently treating military and civilian patients at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham. Search Army Jobs for further information on how to become an Army medic. And that's your 60 second update for January 2024. I'm sure we'll have more to say about that in extra, but the fusion between the British Army and the NHS I found particularly interesting. Yes, indeed. And we'll just very briefly, Debbie, end with this uh, from Bob. Bob Moran, fabulous. We're coming up to Epiphany. These are the three kings, the three wise men. And how wise are they? One is holding on to his gold. There was no pandemic. Another, instead of having frankincense, has got common sense. Climate change is a hoax. And the other one carrying unvaccinated sperm. Men can't get pregnant. Thank you so much, Bob Moran. Yes, indeed. Okay, well, we've got to leave it there. Thank you very much for everybody for our first uh, news of 2024. Uh, we'll be back uh, as usual on Friday at 1pm. Um, don't forget the uh, interview with Ben Pyle at 1pm, ukcolumn.org slash live tomorrow. Um, I'll see you in a few minutes for extra if you UK column member. Otherwise, we'll see you Friday. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.